This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I started playing World of Warcraft a lot, and eventually they like kicked me out of the group. <laughs> of, the, of the research group or the World of Warcraft group? <laughs> you can really love science and not really love research. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talked to a physics PhD turned board game designer and small business owner. You really can't do anything with a PhD. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 113. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, I was thinking about snapping my fingers and making half of our episodes disappear. What does that even mean? Not a not an Avengers fan? Not a Marvel? No. Okay. You know I haven't seen a movie in the last 15 years, right? Dan, we are currently in the middle of one of the largest movie events of recent memory. I just talked to a person who's at a school event with with for the kids and she said oh i brought the kids here so my husband could go to the avengers and it was 8 30 in the morning oh wow which is i guess people go to the movies I mean, it was last week it was probably opening no it was this weekend yeah oh wow yeah well i'm scheduled to go see Adven- avengers endgame tomorrow evening and that is some sort of film a moving picture one of the talkies uh-huh it's a color picture too wow yeah, technicolor that's, that's advanced <laughs> uh, you want to hear some spoilers <laughs> <laughs> that's why i'm seeing it tomorrow is to avoid the spoilers oh, i don't even know how it begins i can't tell you how it ends i've avoided social media well, actually between game of thrones and avengers Endgame. let me just type in here <laughs> to see if i can find something to tell you josh i'm off so if you've tweeted at me in the last week and i have not responded that's because you're ignoring the internet okay yeah. fair but enough something else i'm excited about though dan is this refreshing beer that is in front of us tell me something about it this is another listener beer from adrian and Dan, as you have clearly been aware, warm weather is finally upon us here in North Carolina. It has been swinging, but yes, it's it's getting hot into the 80s now. Yeah, and you can appreciate this, that the blanket of pollen is mostly gone. It now. is. Yeah, we're into the next season. Well, I actually went for a run today, the first time in quite a while, and then I had some salty pizza, and normally I wait until you get here to open the beer, but I was just so thirsty, and I really, I had planned, Dan, we were going to have this oatmeal porter today to oh, drink a little, and, a little heavier yeah and I, I saw this can call it out to me so i called an audible i went ahead and broke into it because it looks so refreshing so we're having the tropicalia india pale ale another one from creature comforts brewing in athens georgia and this was sent in by adrian this came from adrian and on the can it says ripe and juicy aromatic balanced so could not resist that i thought adrian was just trying to convince us to drink sour beers that's not true well he threw us a bone a little bit and sent us one send idea. Us, send us one that's on theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. So um, what do you think of this one, Dan? Well, um, just looking at it, I pulled up our SRM color scale. I'm going to put it between a two and a four somewhere. I don't know where. And to remind folks, the SRM is the uh, descriptively titled the standard reference method that specifies beer color. You think they could have thought of a better name? Yeah, this is pretty light. This we say a straw color. Straw color. Yeah. Did yeah. we describe the flavor yet? Now that we've gone into great depth about how it looks. <laughs> well, you know, for for all of our for listeners more beautiful beers. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is good. You know, I I was looking for something refreshing and thirst quenching, and and this is refreshing to me. It's, it was nice and cold when we poured it, and the bitterness is not high to me. 
No, I'm actually not sure what the IBUs are. But Although right. it, creep, it creeps up maybe in the back. Who knows? Yeah, this is almost like a pale ale more than an IPA. I would because say. it says uh, Tropicalia, I'm going to say pineapple and something else uh, from the some islands. Mandarin oranges. There or, you go. Perfect. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that suggestion? Highly, highly suggestible. <laughs> yeah, suggestion. Um, but this is delicious. I'm certainly enjoying it. Perfect beer for this warm Sunday afternoon. So thanks, Adrian. Thanks so much. All right, Dan, more thanks are in order. We have a couple new Patreon patrons this week. Tell me about them. Special thank you to Suetha and Talia. And this is not the Echidna Talia, but a different Talia. Different Talia, yeah. yeah. We're very popular with Talias, it turns out. You know, I don't think I knew any Talias, and now I know two Talias. That's pretty exciting, like yeah. Three weeks. Why not? Well, thank you so much to both of you. Uh, Josh, don't forget, we are in the middle of a Promega 2019 real-time PCR grant where three labs will receive $10,000 in free Promega products, access to VIP technical service, mentors, uh, specialized training in real-time PCR techniques. So if you are a life science researcher and an undergraduate, graduate, or postdoc program, you are eligible to apply. Just go to promega.com slash real-time grant before May 10th, which is quickly approaching. That is coming up. How popular would you be in your lab if you won $10,000 worth of RT-PCR stuff? Somebody would probably buy you a beer. I sure would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Dan, are you ready to jump into our topic of the week? So ready. All right, Dan, so... Our topic this week, we have a special interview, and I have to admit, this interview is somewhat self-indulgent. I would argue this is your perfect episode. It's a combination of science and one of the things you love most in life, board games. That's right. I think we've mentioned it on the show before, but probably one of my most regular hobbies is playing strategy board games. How many board games would you say you own, Josh? I'm, I'm looking at shelves... So behind the scenes, I actually store my board games on shelves here in the studio. I would say 113, just uh, given this episode number. That's pretty good, Dan. Uh, 130. Wow. Okay. Yeah, 130 I was, I was board low. games. And one thing. So Monopoly, <laughs> Shoots and Ladders, Monopoly, Monopoly Junior, Monopoly right. North need, Carolina. Yeah, you need the William and Mary Monopoly. <laughs> That's right. Podcast Monopoly. Yep. It's all monopolies <laughs> stacked floor to ceiling. But you know, Dan, one thing that's interesting about my board game hobby is I believe I owe a lot of that to you introducing me for the first time to these more strategic board games from Europe back when we started grad school. I agree. It is largely my fault. I ha My brother played a few of these games. They were more interesting than Monopoly. And so I forget what we played back in the day, games like Carcassonne or Settlers of Catan. And now, 130 games <laughs> later, you have an amazing library, and it's something that you, you really enjoy. Yeah, if anyone ever wants board game suggestions, feel free to reach out to me for that as yeah, well. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they'll be banging down the door. Uh, but anyway, along those lines, um, I also tend to listen to quite a few board gaming podcasts as a podcast fan. And I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing someone by the name of Isaac Childress. And Isaac is the designer of a board game called Gloomhaven. And this is going to get a little geeky, Dan. Just, oh, I know me. you very well. <laughs> I'm ready. Uh, so, so there's a website that's probably the main hub. I would call this the PubMed of board games. Wow. Nice crossover. Yeah. It's called it's like uh, the Uber of <laughs> Lyft. 
That's right. But it's called Board Game Geek. Dan, you've probably been on Board Game Geek. I have seen it, yeah, years ago. Yeah, so it's a huge database, web forum, community for those who are interested in board games. Um, But anyway, one of the really interesting features of Board Game Geek is users can rate games, and there is sort of an overall rating and ranking of all the board games that are in this board game database, and there are tens of thousands. Well, over the history of Board Game Geek, which is probably at least 15 years at this point, uh, I think there have only been six or seven games that have risen to number one. Uh, So games that tend to be number one tend to stay at number one for quite some time. One of these games, one of these games, Dan, was one we played quite a bit, Puerto Rico. That's right, yeah. Yep. Early days. So most recently and currently, Gloomhaven uh, became, I think, just the seventh game ever to be atop the Board Game Geek rankings. And... Anyway, I was listening to this interview with the game designer, Isaac Childress, of Gloomhaven, and he was talking about how not too long ago he completed his PhD in physics before starting this board game company and designing Gloomhaven. Like most physics PhDs do <laughs> right after they finish. Well, I stopped in my track stand because we are interested in people who get their PhDs and things interesting things they end up doing. Yeah, people who continue in the career path to become faculty members the way that we're all told we're supposed to. And then every once in a while, you find somebody who steers off the road and uh, takes a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, Dan, one of the things that I do in my day job is I work with some folks who do a lot of programming for grad students that help them explore careers that they can do post-PhD. And I think because of that, I see so many different people, and I've met so many different people, and we've met a lot of people doing this show who are doing so many different things with their degree that when I come across something new that someone who has a PhD is out there in the world doing, I'm always eager um, to learn more about that just to tell students how many different things you can do um, after you finish grad school. Now, I will say, sometimes I think pursuing some of these non-traditional careers takes a little more uh, creativity, maybe even a little little luck. Dan, you would probably say um, some networking possibility. I would say so, yep. Dan, would you say your career is non sort of non-traditional? I would call it very non-traditional, yes. Yeah. I I work at a software company in an entirely unrelated field from what I studied. So, yeah, I would call that non-traditional. We should interview you sometime. We have. It was episode (laughs) four. Was it four? I think so. <laughs> so yeah. if you want to hear Dan's story, you should go to episode four. It was something like four. It was a, uh, something about how not to go to grad school or how not <laughs> to choose a career you'll love or something like that. I think the title of that episode was All's Well That Ends Well. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> anyway, Dan, uh, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Isaac about his experience going to grad school in physics and how he transitioned from working on solar panel technology to designing board games and being a small business owner. And the most popular, successful game on Board Game Geek. So let's take a listen. All right. I am Isaac Childress, and I am the owner of Cephal Affair Games, which has published Gloomhaven, most notably, and also Forge War and Founders of Gloomhaven. So I'm a game designer slash game publisher. And I uh, got a PhD in physics four years ago, and that's why I'm talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And actually, yeah, I didn't realize that you finished your PhD pretty recently. It wasn't that long ago, so that's not a distant memory for you. Uh, It feels distant. My life has changed considerably in the last four years. (laughs) Well, well, that's really what we want to talk about today, because as I mentioned you know, I imagine you do a lot of interviews for 
a board game uh, audience, but this audience that, that we have here on Hello PhD is mostly uh, science PhDs, uh, postdocs, um, trainees. So what we want to talk about a little bit is that really interesting transition you made from a PhD program to not only being a game designer, but you're really a small business owner also, entrepreneur. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, you said you did a PhD in physics. So going way back, what led you to go to grad school in the first place? And what was what was that experience like for you in general? Yeah, sure. So I think it was 2005 is when I started grad school. So yeah, it took a little while to get my PhD. But um, at the time, you know, I'd done undergrad uh, at the University of Oklahoma, and I had a degree in uh, print journalism and physics. And that's an interesting combo. <laughs> yeah, I, I I didn't know what I want to do. I liked doing both of those things, uh, so I just decided to keep doing both of them. And I don't know. Then I was graduating, and I just, so I don't know. I mean, print journalism is is a pretty not a very lucrative or <laughs> necessarily stable field to go into. Um, so I decided to pursue pursue physics, and you know, I figured the best way to do that would just be to go to grad school because you know. A, Bachelor's in physics doesn't really get you much. So, so yeah, I applied to a few schools, got into Purdue um, in, in Indiana, and started started doing that. <laughs> yeah, so what was grad school like for you? Tell us a little bit about that experience as a grad student in physics. Like, was it, was it awesome? Do you look back fondly, like, oh, being a grad <laughs> student was great? Or was it more like uh, sort of the longest uh, years of your life you were sort of in this purgatory of academia or somewhere in between? Oh, yeah, yeah. The second description sounds pretty accurate. You know, <laughs> so it, it took me like nine, about nine years to, to to get the PhD. You know, it's like a master's PhD uh-huh. program. And, you know, the first couple of years, I was mainly just taking classes, uh, which was all right. But I even then, I, I don't know, I felt like a little bit in over my head, like in terms of, you know, it was, it was hard to understand all the material sometimes. Um, but, you know, I eventually got it with enough work. But it was just a lot more work than I was used to in undergrad. I I started off in a high-energy group. Um, so we were working at CERN, sort of looking at the data from, from particle collisions and trying to map all that out. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, I didn't really, it didn't really interest me that greatly. And, like, the the group I was working for sort of had had me doing more of just like grunt work, and I wasn't really inspired. Uh, I started playing World of Warcraft a lot, and eventually they like kicked me out of the group. Um, <laughs> of, the, of the research group or the World of Warcraft group? <laughs> oh no, yeah, the research group. I mean, basically, like I had uh, going into Purdue, I had um, some sort of fellowship. I forget specifically which one. Um, so basically, like once my fellowship ran out and they had to start actually paying me, they decided to not do that. <laughs> fami- familiar story, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, but I stopped playing World of Warcraft, and then I what I really wanted to do, like at, at that point, was sort of get into uh, like solar cell technology, which is more, which is more of like a chemical engineering or or electrical engineering thing. But like I was really interested in sort of helping. Save the environment. Yeah, sure. When, when when did that happen? What was the timeline? So the fellowship ran out, and you suddenly were at this 
uh, Crossroads. Yeah, like two years after I started. Okay. Um, and so I decided to get into solid state physics. And so I started taking some classes in that and started talking to a professor about maybe joining his group. And he gave me a chance and I worked a lot harder than I had in the previous group. Um, so it ended up working out, um, but it did take, there was probably like a year of transition there, maybe half a year. So it took about like six or seven years uh, working with that group um, to eventually get my PhD. And in that time, I was I mainly focused on graphene. So I ended up, I don't know, basically just doing whatever he wanted me to do. I, I took like a class on solar cells, but that's pretty much as far as that went. And so I started working with graphene, which ended up, I think having some success with with solar cell applications, though I, I never myself like put those two together. So, so during that time, you know, what would you say, you know, around around that year where you transitioned into that group? If I would have met you then and asked you, sort of, what what were your career aspirations, or where did you think grad school was going to lead back in those days? Uh, yeah, so I would have probably thought I was going to get my PhD a lot faster than I did, and. <laughs> When I graduated, I uh, wasn't really interested in academia, but but yeah, I figured I could get a job, yeah, at some solar cell company or something, and and just do um, whatever a physicist does. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously that's not how things turned out. Um, so one thing I'm also interested in is, you know, at some point, and not that many years really, you transitioned from, you know, being a physics grad student working on solid state physics and solar cells to being a business owner and designing really one of the most popular board games in the world at this point. So wh- what were you doing in grad? Were you doing any board game design or were you scratching that itch or doing any of that during grad school? How did that get started? So all throughout grad school, I was always like interested in board games and playing board games. I think, you know, it's, um, there was like a, at the like my first year, there was sort of a group that got together and played Settlers of Catan, and eventually I discovered there were better games, at least for my tastes. <laughs> so we started playing like Puerto Rico with some of my friends and Agricola. But then it was really maybe like when does this start? Well, it was around the time I got married, which was I should probably know that 2011. <laughs> I'll edit. Th- I'll edit that out so it'll be a seamless transition where you no, immediately. No, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I got married in 2011. Around that same time, I started going to this uh, weekly board game group. Up until that point, I had just sort of been playing with my friends, you know, maybe like once a month or something. But I found this group, and all these people had much bigger board game collections than I did. And so I started just playing a lot more board games and started playing lots of different board games. And I really just, I don't know, it just sort of clicked with me. And I sort of started thinking about, oh, maybe, you know, I'd be interested in like designing my own game. Like I have lots of ideas on maybe how these games could be better or just difference and interesting. So yeah, it was about probably maybe another year or so before I really started to get into it. About like two years before I graduated that I started designing my first game. And at the time, you know, obviously it was just a hobby. You know, it was just something I had to do in my free time because... It wasn't paying the bills at that point. Oh, no, no, not at all. (laughs) Yeah, I've always had like a lot of creative energy. I always want to have like some creative project I'm working on. Uh, Physics doesn't necessarily scratch that itch. Not very... (laughs) <laughs> many creative outlets in physics. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've built like I've like programmed like flash games. I've run like lots of D and D campaigns. But then I started designing this board game, and I found that very rewarding. So maybe like a year before I graduated, I put it up on Kickstarter 
after working on it for a long time. And it ended up being like pretty successful. Uh, so the first game that I'm talking about is called Forge War. It made, uh, well, it raised about $100,000 on Kickstarter, which uh, was pretty great at the time. This was back in like 2013. I'm sure that had to have been a, a rush, right? To see that yeah, take it was off. Just, it was just crazy. Like I remember specifically like having this conversation with one of my friends like before, you know, before the Kickstarter started and I'm just, you know, just telling him like, yeah, I'm just, I want to put this game on Kickstarter just, you know, not to actually make any money, but just so that I can make this game and like send it out into the world and just be happy that I had made this game. And I have, I have no delusions that this is going to lead anywhere, you know, that would actually make me any money, but you know, it's just something I want to do just as a, as a creative outlets. And then, and then it made a lot more money than I expected it to. <laughs> so did you, did you ever have a moment <laughs> when, when that happened, you know, I'm imagining starting your first Kickstarter and, or I'm imagining what I would do, you know, I would say, Oh, Hey, all the friends in my department. Hey, mom and dad want to fund this, uh, <laughs> want to pledge to my Kickstarter campaign. But did you, did you have a moment where it started taking off and you were like, okay, this is actually happening. Now I've got a now I got to do this thing. <laughs> I mean, well, I was always I was very determined to like at least have it fund and at least have you know the game made. But yeah, it was the yeah the very specific moment was uh, the night before the Kickstarter launched. One of the main reviewer that I had sent my game to, he's sort of one of the most well known like reviewers, especially for Kickstarter games. Uh, he sent me the video that he had that he had shot, you know, so I could post it on the Kickstarter the next day and he was just ranting and raving about how amazing it was and how it was like the best game he'd played all year and it's just oh that had to make you feel great euphoric moment when i watched that i'm like oh wow like this this kickstarter is actually gonna do well (laughs) so okay so the kickstarter gets funded but you're still a grad student at that point yeah yeah i was a grad student probably spending far more time on my hobby (laughs) than i should have I probably didn't work very much in that month. <laughs> the <laughs> Kickstarter was running. So did your did your lab, your lab mates, and your other students in your your department or your lab? Did they know what you were doing on the side? No, no, yeah, I kept it pretty secret. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't so you weren't hitting up the departmental listserv with your Kickstarter no, link. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I would tell my friends in the department, but but yeah, I didn't want to advertise it too <laughs> too loudly. Yeah, my professor sort of found out afterwards, like pretty much when I was graduating. So by the time you graduated, was was your game out? Was Forge War published? Or what was the timeline? How does that factor in with, with when you finished grad school? Yeah, so the Kickstarter was probably like six months or so before I graduated. Um, and so, yeah, the game didn't actually get released until about, I think, four months after I graduated in, in April, after I had graduated in December. So yeah, I was sort of in this transition period. But when the Kickstarter did so well, I hadn't quite started, you know, applying for jobs at that point and I just thought, well, maybe I should just like try this out for a year. You know, so not get a job right away after I graduate, maybe just spend a year just pursuing this this game design thing which I I guess I'm I'm better at than I I thought I was. Uh, and, you know, obviously I consulted with my wife as well and she could, you know, support us for that year. Um, so yeah, that's what I decided to do. Once I graduated, I just started doing game design full time. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty fantastic. I mean, it really, it seemed like the timing worked out pretty well. It was, uh, 
yeah, as smooth of a transition <laughs> as you could have going from uh, physics to uh, full-time board game designer. You know, I mean, there were about two years in there where, yeah, I wasn't making any money. It ended up being, you know, two years instead of a year. But eventually, you know, I mean, that's the case with probably most small businesses. You know, you just got to invest a lot of time and effort into them, and then eventually they'll turn a profit. <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I'm I'm pretty familiar with with your board game work as a, as a board game hobbyist myself, but I imagine the majority of our listeners are not, but you published your first game and obviously that sustained you for a brief time. Um, but I imagine you can't sit on your, your laurels. You're not a millionaire at that point. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, so I know now, as you mentioned earlier, the game that you're probably most known for and your company's most known for is Gloomhaven, which has done, exceedingly well um, and that's even an understatement so <laughs> when did you your first game forge war comes out and that's great you get that out when do you start thinking about gloomhaven or transitioning i mean really thinking about your next game your second game well yeah so first of all the forge war made or you know raised a uh, hundred thousand dollars on kickstarter but i probably saw maybe like ten thousand dollars of profit and when you consider you know it took me like two years of work to to get it to that point yeah it was not it was not a, a lucrative venture <laughs> <laughs> it was a labor of love yeah yeah it was definitely a labor of love but I, I figured you know i now i have an audience maybe my next game will be a little bigger and uh, maybe maybe it'll work out in the ends i mean and if it doesn't you know then i then i get a a job in physics and go about my life there's always solar panels right right <laughs> um so, I mean, you know, you immediately start working on, like, as soon as, like, Forge War was done and I'd sort of sent the files to the printer, or even before that, you know, once I'd finished the design, you know, you start working on your next game. Um, so I actually spent about, like, six months working on this game that I still haven't published. I'm not sure if I ever will. Probably one day. But then I sort of decided for a variety of reasons that, yeah, I was going to stop pursuing that and then start working on a new project and that sort of happened around the same time I graduated. So I graduated and pretty much just started working full time on this new design that ended up being Gloomhaven. So so yeah, the timing was was pretty perfect on that. Like I just I graduated, immediately started working on Gloomhaven by October, like I had the Kickstarter up and that did very well. Yeah, I think it took about like a year and a half, to, or not quite a year and a half, to actually deliver the Kickstarter, because it was a big, a big game full of big ideas. Um, but then once it was actually released, about like two years after I graduated, that's when it started being very successful. Like once people had it in their hands and saw how amazing it was and started rating it really highly on Board Game Geek, then we did like a second Kickstarter, and then you know now we're like in our fifth print run and. Yeah, it's just been a, a roller coaster ever since. So when when did it first occur to you? I remember you you know you mentioned that you had that moment that stands out when you received the the review the video review back on your first game. Did you ever have a moment with yeah. that in the Gloomhaven process where you just realized this is going to be something special? I yeah, it's it's harder. I can't really pinpoint a specific moment for that. I don't know. Like I felt like even in the design, like when I was first play testing it and showing it to people like you know it was sort of had this feeling like yeah this game is going to be 
at least great, right? I think it's going to hit a larger audience than Forge War did, which is a very sort of heavy economic experience, you know, that, that just doesn't have as wide of audience as, as like, the, you know, a, a hack and slash dungeon crawl, which is what Gloomhaven is. So yeah, I've always had, I always had like that feeling that, yeah, I think this game is going to be great. I just need to work on it and make it as good as possible and just, you know, create as much content for it as possible. Yeah, so then we had the Kickstarter, and you know, the Kickstarter made like four hundred thousand, which was you know obviously four times better than Forge War, Forge War, but still even even four times better. You know, if you think like maybe I make like forty thousand dollars, <laughs> that's still not that's still not a lot of money for like two years of work. Yeah, but then I think it was it was really like once it had been delivered to those Kickstarter backers, or even like slightly before that, when I'd sent out some preview copies to various reviewers, and then they're just I don't know, there was just like all this buzz that started like building up like, oh my God, this game is so amazing. And it just like kept growing and growing and growing until it was just this avalanche. And yeah, some somewhere in there, like I realized like, oh man, this is, this is going to be really big. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what is, because one, one thing we talk a lot about on the show is we talk to a lot of folks who do, are doing very different things with their PhD. So what's, what's a typical day like for you? And I'm sure the answer could be there is no typical day, but what <laughs> um, what what would be sort of a you know what what is the, the life of a board game designer board game publisher like? Yeah, in some sense, there is no typical day. Like I just I spend my day doing whatever needs to be done, whether it's you know like answering emails or just sitting down and doing some playtesting. Or uh, the greatest thing is I I just get to work from home and just make my own schedule. You know, so I usually wake up like around 10 in the morning, you know, no alarm clock. I just get to wake up whenever I want and go downstairs. And then I just sit at my computer, you know, usually like dilly dally around for half an hour or whatever. And then start, um, you know, looking at emails. And on that day, I'll just plan out like what I want to do that day. And and yeah, it can just be a variety of things. And then I do those things and uh, <laughs> <laughs> live in the dream. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if I want to just stop working in the middle of the day and watch some YouTube videos, you know, I do that. <laughs> or, or play some video games. Yeah, you know, I mean, in some sense, it's like a, a creative job. You know, like if I'm designing games or trying to come up with new ideas for games or whatever. You know, so I can sort of say like, yeah, yeah, you know, video games is just like fostering my creativity. <laughs> what about what about the business side of it? So, you know, obviously you said you love creative outlets and the the design and creative side of the process. But obviously, you know, I imagine you're a fairly small operation, maybe just you, maybe uh, a few other people. But what about all the business of, you know, working with printers and and yeah. finances and and all of that what is what is that part like is that enjoyable uh no that's not <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not like what uh you know i'm i'm geared for yeah I, I definitely enjoy and feel like i'm better at sort of the more creative aspects of of publishing sort of you know the design side i'm a little disorganized about just sort of yeah keeping keeping everything in in check and communicating with people um, you know, I, I do the best I can, I guess. Um, but actually, yeah. So up until very recently, it was just me. Um, I, I'd sort of, I had this part-time employee who worked in the evenings, you know, after his, his day job who helped me, uh, with some community management and like replacement parts. 
you know, we get a lot of uh, replacement part requests and sort of dealing with with getting those sent out. But so just a couple weeks ago, uh, I actually hired that person to be full time with me, just as like a, a VP of operations and marketing. So now I'm trying to hand over all that business stuff <laughs> over to him because he has a much better mind for it. Um, and hopefully together, like once he's you know, gets acclimated to the job and sort of gets caught up on everything that we were sort of running behind on because he was only working part-time, then hopefully, you know, he can just do all that stuff and I can do all the creative stuff. And uh, yeah, the business will run a lot better than how I was operating it previously. (laughs) Your company doubled in size. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it did. (laughs) Uh, So I just have just a couple more questions and then I'll let you go. But, you know, I actually wonder if, you know, would you say the time you spent in graduate school doing science, working in a lab, do you feel like you gained or honed any skills then that you actually utilize today in your, your current work? Yeah, I think so. I think there are some parallels between like doing scientific research and like designing and playtesting a game. It's because it's it's a very like iterative process in both senses. You run some experiments, and most typically, like something is going to go wrong. You didn't factor in the things that you should have factored in, or maybe just like your equipment breaks or your sample breaks or, or whatever, and you just gotta, you know, figure out what went wrong and, and do it again, and just sort of do it over and over uh, until until things go correctly. Um, and so I feel like that can be applied to like game design as well, you know, where you come up with a prototype and it doesn't work at all because various things are broken. And so you just go back and try and fix those things and do it over and over and over again until, uh, until the game is good. Yeah. Very, very similar. I think our audience can definitely um, commiserate with the experiments don't usually work. The iterative (laughs) process part. Um, I, I guess the last thing is, you know, what advice would you have for grad students who might be listening to this, who maybe are thinking a little bit about their careers and their interests? And maybe, I know we hear from people all the time who you know, are studying a certain thing, but then through that process, realizing they have these other passions and interests as well. What, what advice do you have for, you know, for people like that? Yeah, it's always a little tricky because like you don't want to tell people, you know, quit your, quit your day job and just, and just go pursue your passion. Because like most of the time, like the large majority of the time, like it's it's not gonna work out. Um, so it is, I think, always good to have a backup plan. Like even though I've never used it, um, I'm I'm still happy that I did get my PhD. You know that I have that in my back pocket. I mean, I I don't think I will now ever use it, but you know, there's a a very real chance that I I would have like after a year had had to have gone back to. To, to doing physics. And so, yeah, it's always good to have a backup plan before you start pursuing your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> that makes total sense. Well, why don't you tell people where they can find you online? Uh, sure. So you can find more information about my games and my business at uh, cephalaffair.com. And I write like a somewhat weekly blog about just game design or whatever I'm thinking about. Uh, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which people like to read. I'm entertaining with my newsletter, I guess, <laughs> is what people tell me. And then uh, you can talk to me on Twitter, just at Cephalofair is sort of the social media I use the most. Uh, Facebook is evil, so I don't use that. Mm, here, here. <laughs> What's the story of Cephalofair? What does that mean? 
Dan who Dan who's not here is a he's a word he's a word origin uh, guy, an etymology guy. So I know he would ask you that if he was here. <laughs> All right, yeah, I gotta represent Dan. Yeah, it's pretty much a made up word that I uh, made up because I thought it was a different word. The the word I was looking for uh, was cephalophore, which is like a headless ghost. Well, it's kind of like a headless ghost. It's like used in the sense of like like saints who have been beheaded, who have make a mural or stained glass of them or something, and that's considered like a cephalophore. Um, or, but I mean, it could also be applied to like like the headless horseman from like the Legend of Sleepy Hollow or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the word I was looking for, and that's sort of the icon or yeah of, of my business is like the the headless horseman. Um, but I got the word word wrong initially, and I thought it was cephalophore. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I created my business and gave my business a name and that's Oops. what it was before I actually realized my mistake. So now, yeah, it's just a made up word, um, which I mean, works in some sense, right? Cause like when you Google it, that I'm always, I'm the only thing, you know, it's, there's no other great other for, thing that is for brand fair. identity. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you can spell it, which <laughs> yeah, may or may not be the case. But Google's pretty smart cause I actually spelled it wrong the first time. I put a pH uh, well, in that's it, good. and I was wrong. So, well, yeah, that that's one of that's one of the re, there one of the points at which I knew I was successful is when I typed started typing cephalophore into Google, and it didn't say like, "Do you mean cephalofoil?" <laughs> now cephalophore is a thing. I made it a thing. You made it a thing, and, and Google recognizes it now. So that's fantastic, Isaac. Thanks. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, my pleasure. All right, Dan, I don't know what I'm more jealous of, the fact that Isaac's whole life is designing board games or the fact he can sleep in until 10 a.m., uh, come down in his PJs and I get mean, to you, work. You could do that, too, theoretically. You Some just days. wouldn't work there long, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some days. If I it's plan not that you day. can't, it's that you shouldn't. I'd say it's the kids that prevent me from yeah, that's sleeping true. in more yeah. than anything. Um, what'd you think of that, Dan? Well, you know, it, that, that struck very close to home for me. I can recall those days and moments of being in the lab and thinking, well, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be or exactly what I wanted. And the division between loving science and loving research. um, I don't know if we talk about that a lot, but you can really love science and not really love research. And it sounds like a little bit that's where he was. um, And that's certainly where I was. Yeah. And I'd say for a lot of folks, you figure that out at some point along the way during grad school. Maybe it's three years in, maybe it's five years in, maybe it's six months in. Yeah. In my case, I, I should have focused more on the applications of scientific research, not the being the person who finds out the thing. Um, in his case, it sounds like he really does have this creative streak. He could have been a, you know, maybe a Leonardo da Vinci who did science and then also was an artist or, or whatever it is. But um, being in the lab, understanding these physical properties was not not scratching his itch. Yeah, and you know, one thing this made me think about, Dan, uh, I've been pondering on this interview um, quite a bit over the last week. And, you know, I think about, you know, I happen to know a lot about the board game hobby and, and you know, Isaac's a big deal right now, being the designer of a really popular game. And, and you know, not only has he designed a board game, which there's a number of board game designers, but he also self-publishes these games and is a business person as well. He's running this small business on his own. And, you know, he's he's excellent. He's he's doing a great job with that. And and I think a little bit about Dan, how many people there are in grad school right now, or maybe have gone through grad school, who, you know, maybe they were okay 
at grad school. You know, maybe they were decent at research, but maybe they could have been an Isaac Childress or an excellent, outstanding success in something else that they're passionate about. And I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where I'm landing on that, but maybe just that I think it's really important when folks are going through graduate school to realize that those five, six years, that's part of your life too. And you shouldn't just put everything about yourself on hold during that period of time saying, you know what, I've got to ignore these other passions, these other interests, um, that I have just because I'm in grad school, you know, part of grad school is figuring out who you are and what you want to do. And sometimes that's things outside of your science. Yeah. That, that strikes two thoughts to me. One, I think you're, you're also saying, keep the, you're saying, keep doing the things that you love and that you're passionate about. But I think it's also don't fake, um, don't try to fit the mold of what you think a scientist is because it can really change. The other thing it brings back to me, Josh, were the feelings that I remember having when I knew that this research track wasn't for me, but then thinking maybe nothing is for me. Maybe I will never be good at anything. Maybe I will never um, be happy doing anything. That was a real concern. You know, I, it was a it was a fear, a depression, an anxiety that I had that this isn't working out, and this is all I've ever trained for. This is what I wanted to do since I was in high school, and now it's not what I thought. Maybe there's nothing outside for me, and and that was a real fear. Yeah, and you know, I think it is my hope that those of us involved in graduate training and supporting grad students. We've helped to move the needle on improving the climate with regard to career outlook for our graduate students a little bit since the time we were there. But it's so easy to get locked in this really restrictive mindset where where you really do think, damn, part of that despair that you probably felt and that I know I felt during my postdoc was, okay, well, if I decide that I don't want to be a PI or if I decide I don't want to go to industry and do research, well, crap, that's the options. And you know, we really box ourselves in if we're not careful in a way that we don't necessarily have to. You know, I think it's so important for all of us, you know, not just during our training, but really at any point during our career to maintain an open mind and realize, you know, we really are the captains of our own ship here. And, you know, we should constantly be thinking about and assessing who we are, what our interests are, what our passions are, and what opportunities might be out there for us. And, you know, w- with Isaac, one thing that, that I think is interesting is, a key step in his career transition was actually working to design his first board game and to put it on Kickstarter and make that happen. Well, he did that while he was in grad school. Fairly subversive choice. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think that's what's important is grad school. and, And this would actually be my hope that most people, when they go to grad school, you know, that's probably their plan A because grad school is, it does consume a lot of your time and a lot of your energy, but maybe you're somebody who has multiple interests. You don't necessarily have to completely slam the door on these other parts of yourself um, that you also are potentially exploring. Yeah, I did actually, I appreciated his advice to have a plan A and a plan B and not to have just a single plan because it's one thing to have a, to fall back to something that you already have in the works. It's another thing to just hit a brick wall and have nothing so uh, I, I thought that was good advice for people who are maybe thinking of something a little bit off the beaten path to make sure either through uh, a partner or through uh, keeping, you know, toward your degree, whatever it is, make sure that you've got options because options are always valuable. Yeah. You know, Dan, I would love to hear from some of our listeners about passions they might pursue that are beyond the lab and beyond research. Dan, you know, during uh, during grad school a little bit, during my postdoc, 
uh, and beyond. I was in a band and that sure was were, Josh. <laughs> completely unrelated to uh, people to the can buy CDs. Doing. <laughs> just right to Josh on Spotify. That's yeah. true. Okay, great. Point oh oh one cents per stream. So, there you go. Um, but plan, you know, that's plan B. That's plan C or D, okay. I think. You know, I know grad students now who they do art on the side or they have an Etsy store. Or, or they bake. Or they bake or whatever it is. You know, don't leave Or that. they garden. <laughs> that was you. That's me, yeah. That is you. Um, and, you know, even, even if you're not pursuing those things for a career because you want that to be the primary source of your income someday, I know at least for me personally, Dan... I would not be able to stay sane if my job, my full-time job, which I do enjoy, was all I had. And if during grad school, that was it for me. You know, I needed those to work those other parts of my brain and explore those other hobbies and interests. I don't think I could have persisted without doing those things. It's, it's part of being a well-rounded human being, which is good. Uh, and it's also part of maintaining your mental health, which is something that you are going to be tempted to put on hold and you shouldn't put it on hold. And who knows where it might lead. That is so true. Josh, can I can I take us on a trip down memory lane <laughs> and just thank you for getting the word origin of cephalofare? I knew you would be interested. And if you were on the interview, you would have asked. I would have asked. And it cleared something up for me because cephalofare, I heard and I thought, okay, head for cephalo. And then fair is, it comes from a Latin meaning like... um a market or a holiday or a, some kind of festival or event. So I was like, okay, so it's like a, it's a head game or a head party or oh, a head, that been neat. head vacation. It's like, okay, that, that makes sense. His reference to cephalophore took me down a total rabbit hole. Uh, so this is, this word cephalophore is, you remember when we did the word phosphorus or aquaphor, aquifer, or means carrier, the P-H-O-R. Mm, yes. So it's not just that these are headless, either saints that have been beheaded or, or ghosts. It's that they are carrying their heads. Oh. So when they've been beheaded, a lot of these uh, saints in statues and in art are depicted carrying their own heads. That's a, that's a regular thing. That's a, that's a thing that has... Like Ichabod yeah. Crane. Like Ichabod Crane. I'll give you an example of uh, St. Gemolo is said to have survived his decapitation and after collecting his head, climbed on horseback, he rode to meet his uncle, a bishop, on a small mountain before he finally died. So there's all these stories of people who had been beheaded, and as part of their sainthood, they uh, somehow survived it, carried their head somewhere, and then later died. What's the meaning of that, or the implication of... I have no idea. Trip. I just think it's fascinating. <laughs> so, so now there's this, this word for these people that carry their heads. Um, and, and I'll leave you with one kind of hilarious thing from the Wikipedia article on cephalophores. Artists have a very hard time figuring out what to do with the halo. So some Ooh. put the halo over the neck where it, the head would have been and some put it over the head and some kind of split the difference and do it different places. Oh, you mean sort of put it sort of like the head where does the halo go if the head's <laughs> in the hands, right? If you are a cephalophore, where does your halo go? See, These see are important where questions. words take us. Yeah, anyway, so pretty, I was very pleased to know the origin of that. And thank you for asking. Fantastic. Just wanted to thank everyone for listening and let you know that if you have a question or topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd or leave a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We certainly love the feedback. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money, and thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons. 
Dan, always a pleasure to spend time with you here in the studio. All right. And we will look forward to the next one. I think we've got some good episodes coming up. We're going to be talking to uh, some international PhD students coming up in in a future episode, working on some of those interviews. And who knows what else will come up with, Josh? Who knows? Do you know? I don't know. Well, we keep getting emails, so that should help. (laughs) Send us your emails, folks. All right. We'll see you next time, Josh. See you next time.